The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Father God, your word says in Psalm chapter 67, May God be gracious to us, and may he bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on the earth, and your saving power among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, and let the peoples praise you. Father, I ask that this morning, as we come before your word, that this would be an opportunity for us to proclaim your glory to declare your majesty, to expound upon what your word says about who you are. And Lord, I pray specifically for those people who have been in church every week for year after year, that you would give us a renewed sense of awe about the person of Jesus. I ask that today that if there is any kind of ambivalence or if there is any kind of lethargy in our heart, that you would shake it off of us that you would cause us to see Christ rightly and that you would help us to see him in such a way that we would delight in him as our ultimate treasure. God, I pray that this morning, if there is anyone here that doesn't know Christ in a saving way, that you would please open their eyes to see him. For to see him rightly is to know him and to love him. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that today as we discuss some of the more upper level kind of issues and categories of theology, I pray that this would not be something that is shrugged off by anyone, but we would see the person of Christ rightly this morning because of the categories that your scripture places before us of who he is. And so, Father, I pray for renewed vigor in our, in our faith and in our strength and in our daily living. And I ask God that if there is anything in this room that is currently out of line or out of step with you, if anyone's heart is distracted or discouraged, Please, God, at this time, bring renewal and refreshment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the great debates that occurs in all of sports is the question of the GOAT, right? I feel like almost the football question is maybe answered now, but in basketball it certainly isn't. And I'm going to just inform you that all things being equal, in about three weeks or maybe a month, LeBron James is going to surpass Michael Jordan in all-time scoring. And I guarantee you, at that point, there is going to be a whole new round of discussion about which of these two stand at the peak of the mountain. Which of these two is the greatest of all time? Recently, LeBron said on television, no less, showing no humility at all, that he himself believed himself to be the GOAT. And then one of Michael Jordan's former teammates, Scottie Pippen, was asked about this on television, whether he agreed with the assessment given by LeBron, and he gave an excellent non-answer. He said that it was not fair to compare the two. You can't compare them because they played in different eras, and the game is very different now than it was then. But ultimately, it's understandable to say this is a subjective argument. Both of these players are phenomenal. I don't I think most of the people in the room probably care too much about basketball, if that's you. I won't talk to you about sports. Um, but what I do want you to understand is there is no clear-cut winner. There's no obvious way to determine which of these two is the greatest. Today, we are going to examine the threefold office of Christ. The Bible presents us with three archetypes or three offices or three motifs throughout the Bible. 
we see the prophet, the priest, and the king. Our time together this morning is going to focus on just exactly how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of each one of these offices. He is the great prophet, he is the high priest, and he is the king of kings. And as we will see from the scripture, there can be no debate as to whether or not he is the goat. He is objectively the chief officer in each one of these roles. So before we dive in, I just want to give a little bit of insight into why I have chosen to preach on this particular aspect of Scripture. Well, first I should say there's many reasons, but allow me to effectively offer three of them this morning. First of all, understanding these three paradigms can go a long way into helping you understand how the Bible fits together. When you are reading what is taking place throughout the Old Testament particularly, knowing exactly how this points us forward to Jesus is easier when you understand what these roles and responsibilities are all about. Grasping the concept of God's purpose in designing the Hebrew society in this threefold model will help you to understand how the people of God in the Old Testament were supposed to live. And more importantly... It will reveal to you how Christ is the ultimate fulfillment and how literally everything that came before him was pointing to him. Secondly, this morning we are going to be in the beginning of something much deeper. We're just going to be wading into the water as it were, but soon we're going to come to the deep end. The next three sermons that are coming after this one in this series are all going to be related to what we are learning this morning. All of those topics are going to be the covenants, and then we will look at the law, and then we will look at the kingdom. If you get these fundamental principle building blocks correct, understanding those things will become much more easy and much more clear. So all of those topics find their foundation in the person of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. So as we go through the sermon today, there are going to be multiple times when I will say something to the extent of, there's a lot here, but we're not going to see it this morning. It's like we're going to crack the door open, peek inside, and then back out so that we can get an idea of the direction we are going. But we must have these foundational building blocks to reach the higher levels we are aiming for in the next few sermons. Thirdly, knowing Christ rightly will necessarily show us how we are supposed to live. We need to see Jesus as he is, not as we have imagined him to be. And seeing how Jesus operates in line with the roles of prophet, priest, and king will help us to know exactly what he desires from us and, just as importantly, what he doesn't desire from us. So our outline for this morning is very simple, just the three points, prophet, priest, and king. And for each one of those points, we're going to answer four questions. We're going to ask and answer, what is it? What is the role of prophet, priest, or king? How does this role operate in the Old Testament? How does Jesus serve in this role? And finally, what does this mean for you? So let's begin with the office of the prophet. What is a prophet? Simply put, a prophet is a person that God would select to speak to the people on his behalf. Sometimes he would speak to them about the past. Oftentimes he would speak to them about their sin. Sometimes he would speak to them about the future. But the key is that the prophet would always be the mouthpiece for God. God's pattern of communication has always been to speak through a personal representative here on earth. He does not blanket statement, speak from the sky to everybody. That is not his MO. So how did the prophets operate in the Old Testament? 
The main phrase that is associated with the prophets in the Old Testament is the phrase, thus says the Lord. This phrase, or some variation of it, is used by the prophets over 500 times in the Old Testament. Why would they continually just repeat this phrase over and over and over? Because it was a reminder to everyone present, these words did not originate in the mind of the prophet. These were the words of Almighty God. This was the message from heaven to them. The various prophets served in a myriad of ways. Some were advisors to kings of Israel, like Nathan was to David. Others were common workers whom God called to deliver a message, like the prophet Amos, who was just a shepherd out in a field when God called him and said, go take my message to the people. Jonah was a reluctant missionary who was called to go to a foreign pagan enemy nation. Daniel was in a privileged position in the palace of a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. But the common thread in all of the ministries of the people who were prophets is that they all recognized that their responsibility was to hear from God, to hear the word of the Lord, and then deliver it to the people faithfully. For the next few minutes, we're going to do a deeper examination of the three most notable prophets in the Old Testament. First, Moses. Moses was certainly not the first prophet, but Numbers chapter 12, verse 16, uh, verses 6 through 8, reveals just how significant his role as prophet truly was. This is the occasion when God rebuked Miriam and Aaron because they were trying to usurp the authority of Moses. Here's what God says. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house, and with him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Aaron and Miriam were like high-level in the terms of the breakdown of the authority of the people of Israel at this time. Yet God is saying, do you not understand the privileged position I have given to Moses? He is the prophet of all of the other prophets that I have spoken to. He is the prophet who sees me and speaks to me. He uses the term mouth to mouth. Literally, we would say face to face. Right there, we communicate together. Joseph dreamed dreams. Isaiah saw visions of God and many others saw visions and dreams as well. And likewise, each of the prophets experienced God in some special way as they heard his voice. But there would never be another Old Testament prophet who had this kind of fellowship with God that is mentioned in these verses. Notice that Moses' primary role was not to foretell future events. That was not the primary purpose of the prophetic ministry of Moses. Many people think of prophets and they think oh their responsibility was just to speak to the future that was actually a minor part of their role his responsibility was rather to reveal god's requirements what does god expect from you moses spoke to the people the words of god under the inspiration of the holy spirit he wrote the first five books of our bible and was was responsible for giving the entirety of the jewish law please understand what that means He gave them their constitutional law book that existed as their ruling authority for over 1,400 years. This law book was their governing principle for their entire government. 
And he wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Understand, this was essentially their law book, and God verified Moses' message by showing miraculous signs through his ministry. Yet even Moses recognized that a greater prophet than him was coming. There was a greater prophet on the horizon. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, he writes, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. In other words, there's somebody greater than me coming. There's somebody, if you think I am the speaker for God, there is another one coming, and that's the one you must listen to. So next we consider another prophet. We consider Elijah. This man was awesome. Of all the people in the Old Testament, I I love reading about this man. I think that he is one of the most phenomenal figures in world history. We won't say much about him this morning, except to see that he was primarily calling the people to repentance. They knew who God was. They had heard the word of God from the Old Testament. Yet, even though they knew who he was, they rejected him and they chose to follow pagan gods like Baal and Asherah. God gave proof that the words of Elijah were truly from God when he stopped up the rain for three and a half years. God said, I will put a cap on the heavens and you will not experience rain until I say so, until Elijah says so. How would Elijah know when to say this and when not to? Because it was the word of the Lord given to him. Not only did he do that, but God also affirmed the truth of what Elijah was teaching when he sent, God sent, fire from heaven to the offering of Elijah, but not to the offering of the 400 prophets of Baal. Now, I would like you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Malachi chapter 4. I want to show you how your Old Testament comes to a close. Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. I'll give you a moment to arrive there. If you get to Matthew, turn back one page and you're right there. Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Oreb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's how your Old Testament ends, with Moses, the law, and Elijah, one of the great prophets. And here, what we see taking place in this is a promise that before that great day of the Lord comes, Elijah is coming back. Well, what does that look like? The Jews long awaited the return of Elijah. In fact, to this very day, if you go to a Passover meal, a Seder meal with a Jewish family, you'll actually see that they leave the door open and they leave a a chair available and even often will set a table space for him, put out the plate and the utensils and the cups and everything prepared in case Elijah arrives. That's part of their common practice because they are awaiting Elijah. They expect him to come. But this brings us now to our final prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist. Now, obviously, John the Baptist finds his person in the New Testament pages of your Bible, but he is indeed the last Old Testament prophet to take place before the ministry of the Messiah. He is the last one operating under the Old Covenant. Therefore, uh, he is the last of the Old Testament era, and he is the fulfillment that Elijah would return. He is the second Elijah. 
Don't take my word for it. Jesus declared that himself when he said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. He said, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. John now is the ultimate of this, he says. And if you are willing to accept it, he, John, is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Elijah has come, and his goal was the same goal as the first Elijah, to call the people to repentance, to point their eyes away from the false forms of religion and point them to the true Savior. And so that's exactly what he did with his life. We also see Jesus saying in Matthew eleven eleven, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. But the reason John was so great is that he was diminishing himself, making himself nothing, and giving all glory and authority and recognition to Jesus Christ. He was pointing people to Jesus with every bit of his life. That was the goal of all of the prophets. So how does Jesus serve in this role? How does he operate as a prophet? Jesus was the greater Moses. He was conversing with God on a regular basis. He was communing with God. He was the greater Elijah, combating the false teachings that were leading people astray. And Jesus was the superior to John the Baptist, calling people to faith and repentance. Jesus even referred to himself as a prophet on multiple occasions. Perhaps most notably when he was back home in Nazareth, when he preaches for the first time during his his ministry at the synagogue where he had grown up and all these people know him. And when the people reject him in Luke chapter 4, he says to them, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown, referring, of course, to himself as a prophet. Or later on, when Herod, he is being warned about Herod, he sends a message to Herod in Luke chapter 13, one of my favorite interactions of Christ. And he says to Herod that he must go back to Jerusalem Because no prophet dies apart or away from Jerusalem. He has to go back there because that is the city that kills the prophets. Jesus displayed his role as a prophet in foretelling the future as well. This is something we see most specifically in his foretelling of his own death on at least four occasions and alluding to it on many more. He also foretold the destruction of the temple that would come after his ascension. But we especially see the prophetic ministry in the way that he spoke for God about what is required of a person. And like I promised, we will only peek inside of this door this morning, but the reason this role is so important, the role of the prophet, Jesus as prophet, is that he is the final word on what God demands from the world. Jesus has instituted what Paul would later call the law of Christ. So in a couple weeks, when we reach the sermon about the law, I will be drawing on this part of Jesus' ministry extensively. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is our final word from God. So what does this mean for you? Earlier, I noted that it was never God's practice to speak directly to all the people from heaven. But there are two occasions when God actually broke that radio silence and did speak to the populace. Once at the baptism of Jesus, God set his seal of approval on Jesus by speaking to everyone who was present. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
It was the only time in all of human history when all three members of the Trinity were observable with the human senses. Jesus was physically present in the water. The Spirit was descending on him from heaven like a dove, and the voice of God the Father was audible to all who were present. There was an observable sense of the Trinity in that moment at Christ's baptism. God was declaring, this is my son. This is my son. You have been looking, you've been waiting. Here he is. Later in the ministry of Jesus, he took Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain and God revealed the glory of Christ to them. And at that moment, both Moses and Elijah were somehow present. They showed up in that place. And it seems as though the disciples who were with Jesus recognized them without an introduction, which is another phenomenal element of what's taking place during this transfiguration of Christ. Matthew 17, verse 5, shows us how God spoke up from heaven at this moment. It says, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Moses says there is a greater prophet coming. You should listen to him. Now God, in the presence of Moses, is saying, Here is my son. You listen to him. We must listen to Jesus. Listen to the word of God. Jesus has been very clear about what he expects from the world and what he expects from his disciples. And as promised, we're going to dig much deeper into this in a couple of weeks. But simply put, this morning, I want to call you to never take the commands of Christ lightly. Love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is commanding you, speaking from God himself, as God himself, that you must honor God in these ways. There's much more to be said, but for now, let's move on to the next archetype this morning. The archetype of priest. Where the prophet's primary goal or responsibility is to go to the people on behalf of God... It is the priest's role to go to God on behalf of the people. The priest would function as a mediator who would sanctify the people and their offerings so that they would be acceptable before God. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 explains their responsibility this way. It says, For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Their job is to represent you to him. That's what these guys do. So how did the uh, priests operate in the Old Testament? The priests functioned in many ways to teach the people. I think oftentimes in modern uh, presentations of this trifold uh, aspect of the, of the systems of the law and how the priests and prophets and kings operated. Many people give the teaching role primarily to the prophets, but the prophets were not mainly the teachers. It was actually the priests who were responsible for the theological education of the people. They were the ones set apart to teach them. They were also designed to do many other things, including, including managing the operations of the tabernacle or the temple and preserving and protecting the word of God. The priests were all from the tribe of Levi who did not inherit any land when it was divvied up by Joshua. And why not? Why didn't they receive an inheritance, a physical manifestation of God's kindness towards them in the form of land that they would pass down from generation to generation? Why not? Why did they not receive anything? Because they received a greater reward of being responsible to carry out the duties of worship and the ministries of the word. Which would you prefer? 
Which would you prefer, the land? Or do you prefer to be the one who is eligible to constantly be in the presence of the Lord, teaching people and pointing people to how to worship him rightly? Chief among their responsibilities was the command to offer up sacrifices. And there were many sacrifices that were given for a plethora of different reasons. But for now, we're simply going to zoom in on one of them. Leviticus chapter 16 gives a thorough explanation of exactly what was to take place on the most holy day on the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement. But what we have to understand here is the the most important thing here is why this sacrifice was being done. You can study all about how it was done, and in doing so, you will get a good picture of what Jesus was doing in his ministry. I encourage you to that. I think a lot of people avoid Leviticus. This book is awesome. Don't overlook it. But I want you to see something that is really important, and it is why the Day of Atonement was necessary, why it took place. Leviticus chapter 16, 34 says, And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of their sins. And Aaron did this as the Lord commanded Moses. You must do this because the people keep sinning. You must atone for the sins because they keep sinning. You must pay for them with the blood because they keep messing it up. So the sacrifice of the animal was supposed to play a role in the atonement, right? Well, the short answer is yes, but the longer answer is only tangentially, as it was to point forward or look forward to the true sacrifice that was coming. The fact is, the blood of those animals was never able to take away sin. It never did anything but postpone the penalty for those who truly believed. The incredible reality is, in fact, the very next chapter, chapter 17, tells us the fact that this lamb is not actually the one doing any work. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and God says this, And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. God is telling them that true atonement would never be made from sacrifices that originated with them. Rather, God would be the one to offer a sacrifice, and the blood of that sacrifice would be the only effective agent of atonement for them. Which brings us now to our next question. How did Jesus serve or operate as priest? If you read through the Gospels, they consistently take the perspective of Jesus being the sacrifice for our sins, rightfully so. Perhaps this is presented most clearly in the beginning of the book of John, when John the Baptist saw Jesus in John chapter 129 says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How was a lamb supposed to take away sin? By sacrifice. This was a statement about the atonement, not just some random call to the people to look at Jesus. This was a foretelling of his sacrificial act on the cross. And that's how atonement or the taking away of sin works. So we normally see Jesus presented in this light of being a willing, pure, spotless, blameless, holy sacrifice. And that is absolutely true. However, the book of Hebrews presents us with a much broader image of what's taking place in the life and ministry of Christ. Hebrews chapter 4.14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The bulk of the argument of the book of Hebrews is all to show that Jesus is the great high priest. He is superior to all other priests. 
To summarize, he is greater because he is not a sinner. Therefore, he does not have to offer sacrifices for himself, but only for others. We also see his sacrifice is permanent and does not have to be done repeatedly. It was once for all. His sacrifice was effective because it actually took away sins. His priestly intercession is greater because he is in perfect union with the Father. He can communicate with God in ways those priests never could. His perfect sacrifice is better because he humbly offered himself, not some other animal to give blood. He gave himself on the cross. His priestly ministry is superior because he does not serve in an earthly temple made with human hands, which the book of Hebrews calls a shadow of heavenly realities. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 says, But as it is, Christ obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. He is the great high priest. Can there be any doubt that he is better? He is the one and only true high priest of our faith. So we come to this final question of this section. What does this mean for you? And what does this mean for me? I'm actually going to allow the author of Hebrews to answer that question. From the middle of Hebrews 4 to the middle of Hebrews 10, the author of that book is trying to prove the value of Jesus as high priest. And once he has sufficiently and even exhaustively declared these truths, he finally comes to a conclusion in chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We can hold on to our faith because of Christ. We can have great assurance because he is our high priest. The illustrations, the pictures that he is presenting here are the operations of a priest to purify, to sanctify, to make acceptable to God the people. And he is saying we can trust that we have been made clean by the sprinkling of the atoning blood of Christ and by the washing, which was one of the primary roles of the priest to make sure people were ceremonially clean. If you are in Christ, you are clean before God and no one can ever say that you are unclean because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So now we come to our final archetype of the day, the king. We all know what a king is. Everyone here understands that. Even the youngest children downstairs get the idea of a king. Uh, Even if you go to the nursery, there are children who you would show them a picture of a crown and they would know exactly what you're referring to. But what is the biblical role and responsibility of a king? Specifically, their responsibility was to lead the people in covenant faithfulness before God. He was to lead by guiding the people in righteousness and protecting them from danger, both from the outside and from their own foolishness. So how do we see this archetype displayed in the Old Testament? As promised, each of these sermons will span from Genesis to Revelation. So let's begin with the very first king in the Bible, the first king of the earth, Adam. It should not surprise you to consider Adam as a king. It should not 
be surprising to see him in this position because before creating man, the dialogue within the Godhead was that they would make man in the image of God and give him dominion. Dominion is kingly language. It is a representative word for authority or kingly responsibility. And after God made Adam and Eve, it says in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam and Eve were truly viceroys of God set over all of creation, not to destroy, but to care for it and to fill it and subdue it and have dominion over it. Yet at his very first test, at the very first trial, Adam failed to lead. He failed to protect The serpent came into the garden. He began to test Eve. And do not miss the tiny but important line in Genesis chapter 3, 6, when the first sin took place. When Eve committed the first sin, it says, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, this is the important line, who was with her, and he ate. Adam was right there. He was next to her as she is being tempted, and he is not eliminating this threat from the garden. It was his duty to be the guardian, to be the protector, to be the leader, and to destroy that snake. And he stood there at that tree, and he acquiesced. He let an invader come in and lie to his wife and convince them both to dishonor God. Now, there's a long period of time before God raised up another king who would operate over God's people. But nearly 400 years before Saul became king, God gave some instructions about a king, what a king was supposed to do. There's not much that he instructed. In fact, there's very little that he says in regards to what the king would do. But in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18 through 20, we see the bulk of it. It says, and when he sits, the king, on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to do to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The role of the king was to fear God. The role of the king was to lead the people, not as the ultimate authority, but as a humble servant, seeing that he is a king under the king, that he is the one serving as a representative of the true king. This is what causes a king to be humble and serve his kingdom wisely rather than pridefully ruling with with an iron fist. Lord Acton, the British politician, famously said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But the Bible shows that a true king with ultimate power does not necessarily get corrupted if they do not see themselves as the ultimate authority, but rather see God as the primary authority. If they humble themselves before Almighty God, then they can rule rightly. This is why David is such a good example of the king early in his ministry. While Saul was glorifying in his crown and also trembling at the thought of fighting, of fighting Goliath, David fearlessly walked out there in front of this giant and he knocked him down with a single stone because he realized that the battle belongs to the Lord. I'm fighting you, Goliath, but God's the one fighting you. He's the one protecting this kingdom. This is his nation. You have no idea who you're messing with. 
David operated in that manner for many years. He would not raise his hand against Saul. Why not? Because he was the Lord's anointed. God's going to figure this out. It's in his hands. It's not my responsibility. He has two occasions to kill Saul. And yet he, he chooses to trust that God would direct him rightly. And God would bring him to the throne in God's perfect timing. And that is one of the reasons why early in his life, David is this great picture of what an Old Testament king is supposed to be. He thought more highly of God than he did of himself. He saw God as the ultimate king and ultimate authority, not himself. Of the 41 kings that ever ruled over the United Kingdoms and the Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdoms, of course, Saul, David, and then Solomon, and then they divided and there were 19 kings in both the Northern and Southern Kingdom. What we see taking place in them is that there are only ever a total of six good kings. And of those six, All of them had serious sin issues at some point, David included. Some of them that are not good were doing things such as killing the prophets, doing things like killing the people who trusted in Jehovah, doing things like even killing their own children. These kings were horrible, wicked, evil people. They were not good kings over Israel. And the kings of Israel often are spoken about in the Old Testament as shepherds. This probably started because of David's history of being a shepherd and the parallels of leading people and shepherding a flock. But the shepherds or kings of Israel failed at their responsibility. They did not do what God had designed that role to do. The clearest example of this comes from Ezekiel 34, which I believe begins the heart of that book, In Ezekiel 34, God opposes the kings with an extensive diatribe. After excoriating them for their selfishness and pride, God says in verses 10 and 11, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding on the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. And that's exactly what we see happening in Jesus Christ. These people were not leading. They were feeding on the people. They were not protecting them. They were lining their pockets. God was promising that a greater, real, genuine, true, good king was coming. And part of the reason the people in the time of Christ were looking for a conquering king to come is because God had promised this Messiah. If you go through and you look at all the promises of the Messiah, almost all of them are presented to us in kingly language. That this is going to be someone who rides in as an authority over the people. He is going to rule you in righteousness and divine power and wisdom. So how does Jesus fulfill this role of being king? Well, this is a big question because it's not like any king that has ever lived or has ever lived since then, never before or since, has anyone been a ruler like Jesus. He led by humble example. He never called his people to, co- to go through something that he himself did not experience. He did not serve to become rich, but he gave up the riches of heaven to become poor to serve his people. He did not ride into Jerusalem on a mighty steed, but on a lowly donkey. He did not demand the best that the world has to offer, but he said that foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He did not have indentured servants or slaves, but eager disciples who want to follow after him and seek and serve him. He was truly a king unlike any other. And he gives his mission statement in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man comes to seek and to save the lost. We have a king who served us. 
In fact, the entire book of Matthew is written as a presentation of Jesus as being a king. We'll cover this much more in a few weeks, but the primary preoccupation about the book of, of, of Matthew is about the king and his kingdom. At the beginning of the book, we see earthly kings showing up from a distant country to give him gifts. These kings from other nations come and bow down and worship at his feet when he is an infant. We also see that at the close of the book, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That is kingly language. And everything in between those two events reveals the character and command of a true king. Forty-one times in Matthew, Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus displays his kingly authority over not only people, but over sin and over sickness and over Satan. And in Matthew chapter 27, verse 11, Jesus was asked directly, Are you the king of the Jews? And do you remember his response? He answered, I am. This is why he was crucified underneath a sign that read, The king of the Jews. Now, as promised, we're going to close out in Revelation. At the end of all things, Jesus is still seated on the throne with the Father in heaven. He is ruling over the expanse of the universe. And there is nothing that can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, representing Christ, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night and day will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We see Jesus forever as our King ruling and reigning over his people and the universe. So what does this have to do with you? Jesus has come as the true king to lead his people in covenant righteousness. So I have two final words for you today. First, if you are not a Christian, first of all, thank you for coming here. I'm glad you're here. Perhaps this is your first time, or perhaps you come here every week, but you have not yet trusted in Christ. And I want to say something to you. God has sent Jesus as the king and ruler and authority over all the universe. You are not currently able to receive any of the blessings of the kingdom of God, and you are in fact called by the scripture an enemy of Christ. He has shown mercy to you by allowing you to live to this point and to continue in your rebellion, but he will by no means let rebels go free. At one tree, Adam failed as king. He approached that tree and he allowed his wife to sin, and then he himself sinned. He handed his dominion over to the devil. And when he did, you and I were condemned with him. But the good news is that Jesus, the second Adam, went to a different tree and restored everything that was lost. There at the cross, he crushed the head of that serpent. As 1 Peter 2, verses 24 says, he bore our sins in his body on that tree. And if you're not saved, you're in a precarious position right now. But I want you to know that God has provided a way for you to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Not only to be a random citizen, but to literally be adopted into the family of God as his own child. And to become an heir of the promises of Christ. And there is nothing that you can do to earn it or build it or buy it. You must simply believe it. 
Trust that Jesus died for you. Trust that Jesus bought you with his own blood and you will be saved. Lastly, I have a word for those who are in Christ. Earlier, I prayed that God would not allow us to be lethargic in our faith. I think that it's easy, especially in a place where there's a lot of stuff, a world of materialism, to be so easily distracted by every care of this world and miss the reality of our King, to miss the realities of the person of Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you that if you know Jesus, he is leading you in covenant faithfulness. That does mean obedience. That does mean to honor and follow the commands that he has set forth. forth. But it also means to enjoy and love and delight in him. It means that he is leading you in such a way that your heart would not just be externally obedient, but internally filled with worship to God. He is not only leading you to be externally obedient, but internally delighted with the Father. So do not live as though you don't have a king. Do not live as though you are a free agent. You are not. And so I see, I, I command you from the power of the scripture to seek the Father through the work of the Son, to eagerly obey, but to do so in joy, because he is your prophet, priest, and king. Now there's much more that could be said, but we'll reserve those things for the future. But for now, please join me as we close in prayer. Lord, it is almost overwhelming to see Jesus in these roles. Lord, I know that today we could only get a cursory examination of these things. And we could barely dip our toe into the water of the meaning of them. But Lord, I pray that for each person here, the knowledge of your son operating as their prophet, priest, and king would give them joy and peace and delight in him. I ask, Father, that you would please give each one of us the ability to see Jesus rightly. And God, as we have considered a few ways that this affects our lives, I pray, Lord, that that would be enacted in every heart. I realize that these are broad and general principles, but they are foundational ones. God, I do ask that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would apply the words of the sermon because they are the words of your scripture. I pray, Lord, that we would see Jesus high and lifted up. And we would, just like we sang earlier, we would say he is highly exalted, name above all names, worthy to be praised, that he is reigning in glory and that he is the king over everything, exalted to the highest place. And as we read in Philippians 2, given the name above every name. So, Lord, I pray that just as your word says, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I pray that that would happen in every human heart in this room now and not reserve that for the day of judgment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.